So last week, we were talking about Paul as he took the gospel to those who, last week I said the term I used was religious. And so last week when we, pardon me just a second, when we defined religious, what we said would be like people who would have been aware of the biblical Judaic Christian worldview, not Christian yet, but they would have been Jews, they would have understood the revelation in the Old Testament, and they would have thought that God accepted them and that they were fine. And so we made a parallel to like today, meaning a nominal Christian who perhaps went to a Christian church once or was baptized, but they're not really believers. This week, I found out that the passage actually calls these, what I would say are like pagans, like you know, pagan believers, or following pagan ways, it calls them religious. And so I thought, oh man, I should have saved religious for the people we're going to talk about this week. It's okay, so we'll say spiritual, because that's kind of like a similar turn. So last week we talked about religious, which is kind of like people who know the biblical worldview but don't believe. This week we're going to talk about Paul reaching out to those who don't know the biblical worldview, and we'll call that spiritual. So today that would have a lot of parallels in our culture. It could be people who practice some other religion. It could be people who don't necessarily practice a religion. And we'll see that in the text today. And today we're going to make it a pretty simple message. We're just going to have lessons that we're going to learn from Paul as he goes to a a primarily pagan culture, not a Christian or Jewish culture at all. And we're going to say, how does he interact with them? Uh, There's people all around this neighborhood. I, I had coffee at the coffee shop down the street this week. Really good coffee. I'm, I'm a big fan. I'll come back there. But I could definitely tell by the decor and whatnot that it was not a Judeo-Christian background of what's going on here. Uh, I, was, I had jury duty this week for two days. I didn't get picked, but the selection took almost a two full days. And it was interesting listening to the lawyers ask the potential jurors questions about truth and meaning and justice and hearing a lot of different responses. I thought, man, I don't know if I'd want to have all these jurors on my trial if I was being brought up on charges, well, hopefully not for a crime, uh, but maybe just for this. So today we'll go ahead and read the text, and then we're just going to look at some lessons we can get from the text on how we could be like Paul and go to the neighbors and the people that are around us. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we love you. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for your grace and your kindness, Lord, to us. You are generous, you're gentle, you are kind. You are loving, you are forgiving, and we're so thankful for that, Lord. Lord, today especially, we're very well aware of another thing that we're thankful for, God, and that is the opportunity to gather right now. Father, I'm always, I'm often thankful, but today even more so, that we have the ability to gather in this building, Father, and to meet, uh, to encourage ourselves, to read your word, to devote ourselves to the teachings. And Father, we're doing this at very, almost no risk to ourselves. Father, we're thankful for that. We pray that we would steward that well and make the most of it. Lord, there are believers around the globe right now in the other parts of the world who just to meet together, Lord, it would be quite challenging and it would be quite a risk, uh, at least to their livelihood, many if not just their livelihood, their lives. And so, Father, we do thank you today, Lord, that we live in a place where you've made it possible for us to peacefully gather and to meet with you each, meet with each other this week as we worship you and uh, praise you. And so, Father, today I pray that you'd bless our time in your word and that it would truly help us to think differently or more scripturally about how we might reach those around us. In your son's name we pray, amen. Acts 17, we're going to start in verse 16, read the whole passage. Now, while Paul, I should back up. So remember, there are five churches that we looked at last week. And Paul's going all through kind of Asia Minor area. Here, we're going to see Paul's, we're specifically focused on one church, which is in Athens. Now, Athens is in Greece, and they were very pagan. I mean, if you think of Greece, you're thinking of the Pantheon, you're thinking of Zeus and Hermes and all the different Greek gods. That's what they would have believed in. That's what they would have worshipped. Uh, we'll get a little bit more into the background in a second, but that's the context. So Paul's just been kicked out of Berea 
because those pesky Jews from Thessalonica followed him to Berea and raised another riot, and he had to leave. They had to send him away on a ship. And so here he is in Athens, and he's waiting for Silas and others to show up so they can keep going through this missionary journey. So here he is waiting. Now let's see what happens. Verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that that city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. And he also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and I observed your objects of your worship. And I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in a temple made by man nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet... He's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of the man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined and believed, among whom were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So, man, what an interesting story. Here Paul is in the midst of a pagan culture waiting for his missionary group to follow along. They haven't shown up yet. And he just observes that, man, this city is full of idolatry. And he got a little ticked off in his heart. And so he goes to the synagogue, which was his normal custom, but then... The text makes notes that he also went to the marketplace. So today, we want to just learn some lessons from Paul about how he went to the marketplace. And I want you to be thinking also that you might think of how am I able to go to my own marketplace. All right, if you want to go two slides forward to the first section, lessons. There we go. All right, so lessons from Paul's going. Uh, Let's have some lessons here. So number one, Paul took opportunities. This whole first section, I think what Luke is trying to get at is that Paul goes here and what's he do? He takes opportunities that present themselves, but he also works to make opportunities happen. I think sometimes we wait around for an opportunity. We're kind of waiting. Okay, God, when are you going to give me an opportunity to share? I'm waiting. I'm waiting. But Paul doesn't just wait for those to happen. Now, he, he finds some. He goes and makes them happen. He goes out and shares the gospel. So the first thing we see is that Paul took opportunities. So verse 16 says what? Paul was waiting for them in Athens. 
Man, I, I don't know about you, but when I wait somewhere, I've got this awesome thing called a phone, and it's got awesome things on it that entertain me. <laughs> I've got email, I've got social media. I mean, email's not that entertaining. I hardly ever look at it. Actually, if you're one of my students, you know this. And, yeah, so, you know, I can look on there, and I can, oh, man, this and that. I can check news. I can read, you know, Twitter or whatever. If I'm really disciplined, I could perhaps read a book on my Kindle, but sometimes I just want to relax. So jury duty this week, I was sitting waiting for two full days, and it was very hard not just be on Twitter the whole time. So I brought a book to read. That was very good. That was a good opportunity. Uh, but I was also listening and trying to think, well, what does that person think? What does that person think? Because this is all in my mind. I'm trying to think, how can I work this in? So what did Paul do? Well, he didn't just sit there and twiddle his thumbs or take a vacation or sit back and relax. He said, hey, I'm here. I'm here in this city. There's a lot of idols. I'm waiting. Who's in control? Who's sovereign? God is. Hey, let me make the most of this. And so what did he do? He did what he always did. He went to the synagogue. Now, I'm going to say, I'm going to use the synagogue and the marketplace as two metaphors or illustrations for us today. So think about Paul. Remember, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. It would be like, I don't know, I don't want to say this because I don't want to be offensive, but like, I don't know who your favorite preacher is, who's like well-known personality. I'm just going to throw out some names that are well-known. If you take issue with any of these names, please don't throw stones. I don't know who you like. So, like, John MacArthur's pretty popular, you know? Some of you probably like him, some of you may not. Maybe, like, John Piper, maybe Al Mohler, maybe Alistair Begg. I mean, like, I could, you just list all those, like, popular Internet people who are known and they're preachers. So, if one of them showed up today, just randomly wanted to visit, man, if we're all, like, fans, we might say, hey, Andy, sit down, let's let, let's let him talk for a minute. And I'd be like, yeah, let's let's do that, right? He would have a hearing, Okay, so Paul, anywhere he went, as long as they hadn't heard about his change, he could walk into a synagogue and say, hey, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. And surely they would have wanted to talk to him. And even if they had heard of him, wait, this is the Paul who flipped? He changed from being a Jew. Now he's a, one of those Christians. Maybe they want to debate him. It was his own opportunity. Now, if I walked into a synagogue today, I don't think anyone would give me that opportunity. <laughs> okay, it's not the one that I have but it's the one that Paul had, and so he made the most of that. I, if I was in his day, I never could have done that. I could have walked in, they would have been like, what are you, Gentile? Get out of here. You know, but Paul was a Jew. He was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, he, he had the pedigree. He had the training. He had the knowledge of the Torah. So he could walk in and go toe-to-toe and have conversations with them. So that's kind of like his own personal opportunity that no one else had, and he took it. So here's the question I want to ask you. What's your synagogue? Not, not a synagogue. But where do you have an opportunity to talk to someone that other people in this room don't? So I was thinking about this as a week. I have two opportunities that I was thinking about. Oh, I have two friends. They, were, they claimed to be Christians early on in life. And since then, one I know for sure has walked away. And the other one appears to be living in a way that doesn't really show that he is probably following Christianity anymore had this thought well you know what let's i got i got an opportunity right here so i got on a facebook messenger and i just struck up a conversation with both of them now the one i've been going on with for a while but man i i I think i'm going to be able to have an opportunity here in a way where if anyone else messaged these two people i don't know if they would have you know but i do so to me that's kind of similar to paul's synagogue what about you who do you know where do you work are you in like a do you do you like a hobby or something like you golf or or you disc golf or you you have a sewing club or a basket weaving club or I don't know whatever you what do you do do you have any hobbies are you out in the culture anywhere if you do that's your own opportunity now the question is will you be like Paul and follow his example and take that opportunity so uh, number two what's another lesson here he was infuriated about the right things. Now, this is interesting. So this word here that his spirit was provoked in him, I have an ESV. Who's got a New King James? What's the New King James say? I just, I'm just curious. Same thing, it provoked. There's some translations that make it a little stronger, um, but probably there's one translation that I was looking at that had a footnote here and said, you know, if you'd said that in Greek, 
people would have thought you were infuriated, like you were ticked off, you were a little bit, you were angry, you were enraged. So provoked is kind of like, oh, I'm a little bothered maybe, but he was like frustrated. So he goes to a culture, he sees all this paganism, all this idolatry keeping people from, you know, believing and trusting in the one true God. He got angry about that. And I think it's interesting that here's Luke writing a record of what happened. And he chose to point out something that Paul was mad about. Usually when madness or anger comes up in the scriptures, unless it's Jesus flipping tables in the temple, anger is like a bad thing. But I don't think that's what Paul or what Luke wants us to understand about Paul. I think Paul was infuriated about the right thing. It's okay to be infuriated about unbelief and deception and people who turn people away from the living God. I think as a Christian, that's okay based on what we see here. Now, why would Paul get mad about this? Why would he be infuriated? Well, number one, I think Paul had a deep love for God. I think that's evident through how he lived, how he sacrificed, how he was willing to get beat up and you know, left for dead and imprisoned. He'd only do that if you really loved God. <clears throat> so I think that love is what motivated it here. Now, the Jews got angry about Paul back in Thessalonica. What did the text say was the reason? Does anyone remember? A little pop quiz here. They weren't as noble as the Jews in Berea. They were jealous. Now, sometimes we can get infuriated for not the right reasons. Maybe jealousy. Oh, man. And that would be a bad motivation, wouldn't it? I think the other reason that Paul probably was infuriated is he really loved people. I really believe he loved people. He loved lost people. He saw lost people. He probably saw himself in them. And he loved them. So I think loving God and loving people, the great commandments, I really think that's what gave him this proper frustration with idolatry that he saw in his culture. Question for you. What do you get mad about? What infuriates you? I used to... Um, I used to listen to a lot of conservative talk radio when I was driving around for my job. And, uh, man, that works me up. If you want to get me mad, just make me listen to Sean Hannity. I just, oh. Now, what I noticed is I could come home, and another person who lived in my home, and we didn't have kids at the time, so you'll know who this is, could make observations about my demeanor as I walked in the door. And so I eventually decided, I don't think this is really good for me. I think this is just stirring up the flesh. Now, since then, I've talked to another friend who says, yeah, Andy, I used to listen to, to talk radio too. Um, and I still am very conservative, but I, I can't listen to that stuff and be sanctified. <laughs> and so he doesn't anymore. And so is it right for me to be infuriated about what's going on in our country? On a level, yes. Some really bad things are going on. But why? I think the proper reason to be infuriated is if those things are making it harder for people to know the Lord or are leading them away. Now, I do think, like, truth is truth, okay? And when a country abandons truth, the country's going to face the repercussions of abandoning truth. But what would I want my neighbors to know me for? Probably not being the infuriated Christian on the block who's always out there angry. Now, it is also interesting, in this passage, Paul's infuriated, but I don't think that's how he was speaking to the people in the Areopagus. I think he was a little more tactful and gentle. But sometimes we get infuriated, and I think we just throw all those communication verses in the Bible out the window. Like Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs of anger. I mean, I think and we get this, like, I am the stir stick, and I am going to, you know, like, everywhere we go. So, which would probably be good if you worked at, like, a paint store, you know. Anyways, um, so... Paul got infuriated at the right thing. I think that's a good lesson. When you're out and you're talking with neighbors and you're talking with people who are unbelievers, I think it's going to be easy to get infuriated for maybe wrong reasons. All right, number three, what's the third lesson? He created opportunities. So in verse 17, it says he went to his marketplace. So um, it says, he reasoned with the Jews in the synagogues and the devout people. And here it notes that he went to the marketplace every day and he interacted and reasoned with those who happened to be there. Now, again, he is waiting around. And when does the synagogue gather? 
on Saturday. And what do they do for the rest of the week? Well, I don't know. They probably get together, but they're not all there. And so what's he doing? He's not twiddling his thumbs. He's got time on his hands. So what does he do? He goes to where there's a lot of people. He goes actually to a place where they're talking about religious ideas. So it says there were Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. So just, you know, uh, the Epicureans were, I think I have this coming here in a minute. Yeah, Epicureans were materialists. So if you're a materialist, it doesn't mean that you like things, okay? I'm not, um, I'm not saying you like your toys and your cars and your house. That is like material things we love. But this kind of materialist is saying that there's nothing other than physical things that I can touch, like energy, matter, the scientific stuff. But there's no spirit realm, there's no God, there's no angels. And so they'd be here debating. And then you had the Stoics, and the Stoics were a little more like, hey, we've all got God in us, we're all like a spark of divine. Now that's called pantheism, where everyone is God, and God is everyone, and God's in everyone. All I want to point out is that the people he's going to talk to are not ascribing to the Torah, okay, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. They're certainly not believing in this Jesus character. And so that's who he's going to talk about. That's who he's going to speak with. So um, he creates opportunities. So he, he goes to the marketplace. What else would have been going on there? you got businesses, people buying and selling, okay? So where does buying and selling take place today? You probably had legal stuff going on, legal business. Um, you might have also had a little bit of like hanging out going on at the marketplace. But today, if you're going to go hang out, like where do, we, where do we hang out in our culture? I mean, I know right now it's basically in our home in front of our television watching streaming stuff, but I would say like maybe restaurants. That's a little more like you go there on purpose with friends. Maybe a coffee house. Maybe one of those places that serves stuff we probably don't like to consume. That might be one of them. Maybe there's like social clubs, Kiwanas. Like there's all kinds of social groups that get together and they do something. But then there's a lot of talking, okay? Like book clubs at the library. That might be something similar today for us as to what Paul has had going, what he was experiencing where he was at. All right, so he, but he went to those places, he found them, and then he went where people were. All right, number four, he ignored offensive comments. So I, I, I don't know if you picked up the tone. I tried to read it with this right kind of tone here, but he said uh, in verse 18, they say, what, uh, some of the Epicureans were saying, what does this babbler wish to say? And babbler, you know, we think of little, little toddlers as kind of babbling. They're blah, 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 blah. They don't know what to say. They make noises. Again, I, I, I'm not faulting any Bible translation I'm just saying babbler's a good translation, but in that culture you would have heard something else. It was literally seed picker, like seed picker. And they're talking about like birds that go and pick for seeds all over the place. And so it was a, a pejorative put down in the, in the like thinking community. Oh yeah, he's just this guy who picks up an idea here and there and then goes and talks about it, but he hasn't actually studied, he doesn't have a system. He's an, basically, he's a novice, he's a noob, he's a rookie, he's a, he's a freshman, he's a... He's sophomoric in his thinking. He's, uh, I don't know, like w- ways of intellectually saying someone's kind of dumb. All right? That would have been it. Now, if someone comes up to you and, and, and said that to you, and if they said it to me, probably my flesh is going to react a certain way, right? What are you talking about? What are you calling me? Like, you know, and I'm going to want to react. Paul probably heard them calling him names and putting him down and saying, you're an idiot. I don't have any record in the text of Paul fighting back and like making fun of them back or returning an accusation or a slander for a slander. I think that's a lesson for us. You go to lost people, what are they going to say about us? What are they going to do? Man, they're probably going to make fun of us. Um, if you've ever, you know, you've ever been around someone who's kind of said things about Christians, you might have heard something like, oh, Christians are just escapists. They just can't handle reality, so they dream of this other world. Or maybe Christians only care about birth. They don't actually care about all of life. Not true at all. Factually, demonstrably provable. But that can feel frustrating when you think of all the stuff Christians do for life and then to hear that. 
Christians are hypocrites. Well, yeah, but who isn't? Christians are not very intellectual because they're so superstitious, and yet you've got a culture who are all superstitious. So you can hear those things, and that can be hard to not respond in kind and want to like, put, the, put the, the gloves up and start fighting. So I think he ignored comments, so now we too. All right, so you want a next slide for me? So let's have some applications to today. Uh, I think the question we should ask ourselves is, are you and am I taking and making opportunities to speak the gospel to those of your synagogue and your marketplace? Are you taking opportunities? Uh, This is challenging, I think, because it requires me to stop and really ponder and think about my life. Um, I don't think of Facebook Messenger as a, as a synagogue opportunity that I have, like my own opportunity. Uh, but, man, it really, it really is. And oddly, very oddly, I literally just saw a message come up from one of the two I'm ta- literally just now answering. So it's like literally going on right now while I'm preaching. Hey, that's awesome. Paul would have had to go to a marketplace or a synagogue, but hey, this thing can go on 24-7. So do you have a friend? Do you have someone you know? Do you have an opportunity at your work, at your, in your social group? Do you have an opportunity online? Think creatively. Uh, is there someone you can strike up a conversation with who you haven't talked to in a long time? Uh, some people are, they just don't have many people who are their friends to talk to. And that might be an avenue because you know them. That might be an avenue for you. So I, let's, let's try to think creatively. All right, number two, are you infuriated by the right things? Some of us are a little hot-headed. And we're, we're known that way. This this might be the Lord bringing something up in your soul. Do you always have a comment? Are you very opinionated? Are you ready to share it? You get a little, is there a little heat sometimes behind your words when you're sharing your opinion? And if an unbeliever says something, are you ready to like lay waste to that person? I think Paul probably had a lot of things he could have been infuriated about. But I'm thankful that I, I really think he's infuriated only by the idols and the fact that it was... Satan and the unbelieving world working against God. Is that something that infuriates you? Now, if it doesn't, I don't think you need to work up false infuriation. But I think it's a good question, right? It's a good question that kind of gets at the heart of what's going on in our souls. And then three, do you ignore offensive comments from those who are hostile to your faith? Man, that's hard. That's really hard. Especially you get into the political arena where there's anything political that I believe that's right top, tied into my faith. Man, that's, that's hard to ignore. All right. So I'm looking at the time here. We better move on. Uh, the next two go quicker. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. Uh, next slide. Oh, here we are. We're already there. Good, good job. Okay. All right. So now we're in verse uh, 22. So Paul, the Areopagus is, I'm just going to really quick on that one. The Areopagus was either some sort of a legal council in Athens or it was a philosopher's club where like, not club, but like people would get together. On, there's a hill that was devoted to Ares, which is the god of war, or Mars. If you're Greek, it's one. If you're Roman, it's the other. It's a Greek god, Roman god, same god. The Romans just copied the Greeks. It's, it's, it was cheating. It, today we would have called it plagiarism. They would have failed. Uh, but there was a hill, and the, the word in Greek for hill is Pegasus and Ares, Areopagus, Areopagus, the hill of Ares, which, by the way, that's why we call them pagans, because pagans would go on hills and do their worships to their false gods. So either it was, they met at this hill, it was like a meeting place, or it was a council that dealt with like low-level crimes or civic issues. Briefly, in Greece's past, they'd had like this golden age where everything went well. And then when things started going bad, they thought, why is everything going bad? It must be that we're not worshiping the right gods like our fathers used to. And we need to go back to doing what our fathers had done. Who's causing us to worship the wrong things today? Socrates! Make him drink some poison. That whole thing with Socrates was essentially people, superstitious Greeks, saying, why are the Spartans and the Persians, and why is this going badly? Oh, it must be that we're not worshiping the gods the right way. And so that was the whole issue with Socrates. That's why he got called up on charges. That's why he ended up drinking the poison and commit suicide. Um, And that went badly for Athens because Socrates was really smart. 
and it, it really destroyed the reputation. But this is a couple hundred years later, and what do you got? Hello, I'm Paul. I'd like to talk about the resurrection of this guy named Jesus. He's not really in your pantheon of gods. Uh, but this guy is the real guy. This is the guy who created heaven and earth. You sh- and he's going to judge you one day. So now you've got all these you know, Greeks who know what happened in the past, and maybe they're thinking, uh-oh, is this another Socrates situation? Uh, hey, can you come here? We've we got to talk. We've never heard this. Can you tell us about that? They may have just been vetting it to make sure they don't need to make Paul drink poison or something. Uh, that's maybe overstated. So that's the Areopagus. So when, when they find out there's a new teaching, whatever the reason is, it's either that or at the end of, uh, in the end of 21, it said all the Athenians just like to talk about stuff, new things that they'd never heard before. So it could have been they're like, ooh, we haven't heard that one yet. Hey, come tell us about that. You know, and then after that, someone else, oh, do you think there's aliens and flat earth? Hey, come here, tell us about that. That sounds good, too. I mean, it may have just been that they wanted to hear about the next thing. So, verse 22 says, Paul, he stands in the midst of them, of the men of the Areopagus, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, when it says very religious there, it almost sounds complimentary, but it may have been a little bit of a, a jab. Because they called him this vain babbler, and they probably thought he was superstitious. So it might have been him coming up saying, hey, you guys, I see you're superstitious. And it might have been him, like, sort of getting their attention by using the same label on him that we're not sure. I don't know. I don't think Paul was too jabby at this point. So maybe it was just, hey, I see you're very religious. You you believe a lot of religious things. In fact, I even see you have an idol over here because you have many idols. And this one's to the unknown God. Now think about a culture that's so concerned that they worship all the right gods. What if we miss the right God? Well, you know what? Let's make an altar. And if we miss one, we can say, hey, that's your God. We didn't know your name, but we had an altar for you. So Paul uses that to his advantage. He says, hey, let me tell you about that. So that's what I'm going to call an entry gate. It's like an opening to get into a conversation. All the Athenians would have known about the altar of the unknown God. And now here's a guy saying, I know the God. I know who that God is. Oh, okay. Well, we'll hear you out. So it was an opportunity in the culture that he would have been able to share and start talking about this. Oh. So I would say that he, 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 he looked for a cultural entry gate to be able to talk about Jesus. So the first thing he does, he goes and he looks at the culture and he tries to find a way to start talking about this. Side note, that means he sort of understood the culture a little. So he shows up in Athens and he, he doesn't go only straight to the synagogue and then He's, he's observing the culture around him. He knows they have a lot of idolatry. He knows they think this. In fact, he's even walked around and seen that they've got this weirdo idol over here. Oh, that's a, I could use that. Hey, come talk to us. Okay, hey, you know that God that you say you don't know? Here, let me tell you who it is. Might have something for us to learn. I don't think you need to go out and become an expert in Hinduism or Buddhism or, or uh, secular theory or anything like that. But if you just know what the culture says, you might have a way to easily transition into talking about the Lord. So, all right, number two, he answered the question, who is God? Now, notice in the synagogue, Paul immediately could have said, let me talk about the Messiah. And that is, by the way, this guy who resurrected named Jesus. He could have jumped right in. With this culture, he steps back and says, let me talk to you about the God who's unknown to you. This God created everything. Now, he essentially, for the next three verses, just talks about God's character. You can get God's character wrong, and we can both use the word God and mean very different things. I had a Catholic I worked with, and we tried to talk about salvation and faith and grace, and we kept getting nowhere, and later on I realized, oh, (laughs) when you say salvation and grace and faith to a Catholic, it's the same word, but it means something different. And so I was like, do you think salvation is by grace through faith? He's like, yeah. And I think, oh, he's saved. Uh, no, he also thought he had to have his kid baptized or his kid would go to hell. And, w- well, why was it? They're, they're different term, the same term, different meaning. Well, all of these pagans would have said, we believe in the God. Okay, let's talk about that God. So Paul was ready to explain his character. So notice what he says. The God, uh, I'm a, what you therefore worship is unknown, I will proclaim to you. Now in 24, he says, the God who made the world. Now, which God is he talking about? the creator. He's going to do the same thing in Romans chapter 1, which is where we're going to be next week. He made everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. 
But that God doesn't live in a temple made by hands or made by man. And he's not served by human hands as though he needs anything since he's the one who gives mankind life and breath and everything. So his first statement is, the God I'm talking about is the God who created everything. If you create everything, do you need anything? Do you need a place to live? Do you need food? Do you need any of that? No. Now, this would have been logically powerful. Because here are all these people thinking, i got to put food on an altar, and i got to sacrifice to an altar, and i got to make sure he's at... Huh. Well, I guess the Creator God wouldn't be like that. I mean, that would be weird for me to give the Creator God something when He is the one who's given me everything, including my own life. This is pretty powerful. This is a good argument. All right, he goes on and he says, And, verse 26, He made from every man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined its allotted periods and its boundaries and its dwelling places. So the Creator God didn't just create mankind, He created everything you see. And he even set where mankind's going to live. And then verse 27 says that they might seek God and perhaps they could feel their way toward him and find him. Now here he's holding out the opportunity that, hey, there's a way that you can look around and see some stuff and realize there's a God. Now again, next week we'll be in Romans chapter 1. And that's essentially what Paul says there. He says, when you look at the creation, you know there's a creator God. And Paul's just doing the same thing here. Verse 28, or then he says, yet he's actually not far from each one of us, which would have been funny because these idolaters would have thought, oh, the gods are distant and they're very far from us. But here he's saying that God is very near to us. Verse 28, now here he quotes two times. And here's where I want to say, number uh, number three, he knows a little bit about the culture's teaching and that ends up being an advantage for him. These two quotations are philosophers of the day. Is that weird? If I came up here and I quoted Socrates to you, and then I said, hey, you should live for the Lord. Socrates says this. What would you do? Hopefully you'd kick me out of the building, right? (laughs) Hey, uh, President George W. Bush says we should be kind one to another. So, hey, let's go be kind. I mean, if I quoted anyone other than the Bible to you and said that's why you need to do this, would you throw me out of the room? I would hope so. Why does Paul quote a pagan author? It's a total, it's a, it's a rhetorical move. It's an argument move. This is what he says. Hey, in him we live and move and have our being. And then he says, and some of your own poets have even said, we're his offspring. Now, he just quoted very likely an Epicurean philosopher and a Stoic philosopher. Who are the two groups he's talking to? Stoics and Epicureans. And so out of their own mouth, they're saying, God's who we live and move and have our being in. He's the one that supports us and gives us life and another one says hey we're his offspring we're basically his kids and so paul says hey out of your own mouth like you said it that's what the bible agrees with like god gave us everything if it weren't for him we couldn't live or move or have any being and by the way we are the sons of god we're actually made in his image so he he, now what if he says hey the god who created us we're his kids and they're like no you can't say that that's not right who are they now going to have to argue with their own philosophy. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Uh, if you're points lost, it's so good, so good. There's a guy today who argues that the resurrection is true, but he won't use the Bible. He's a Christian. He won't use historical research by any Christian. He only uses secular data and atheistic, materialistic data. And he builds this case that the resurrection is the best answer of what happened back then. And at first you think, that sounds pretty heretical. But why he's doing that is the same reason Paul does this. How are you going to argue that the resurrection is wrong by saying this historical guy is wrong, but that guy is on your team? It's beautiful. So, he knows the culture a little. Like, Paul's done some homework here. Paul doesn't just know the gospel and walk out. He actually is trying to know his audience and who he's talking to. you. All right, number four. He answers the question, who are people? So now look at verse uh, 29 here. He says, being then God's offspring. So he's talking about humans. We ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image, image here, think Genesis. Humans are made in God's image, okay? Formed by the art and imagination of man. So what are we? 
well, if we're like God in some way, then why would we turn around and make something out of stone and call it a God? He's talking about the nature of humanity and how that shows that these idols can't be real. Paul's really taking their information and showing how it doesn't fit. It's, he's showing you can't live in the world that you're creating here. And then lastly, he guides the conversation toward Jesus and judgment. Now, today there are some evangelistic models that would say don't bring up the judgment. Just talk about the plan that God has that's good for you. But he's literally going to move in and say you're going to be judged one day by this guy and you should probably get right with him. So verse 29, or verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. So before these people in Areopagus had known, like he overlooked that. He says, but now he's commanding all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's appointed. And of this, he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. So the one who raised from the dead, the one who resurrected, is the one who will one day come back and judge. Now, Paul doesn't name Jesus here specifically. He's going to bring him up, obviously, in conversation he did. But it is interesting. Paul said, God, and then he said, Lord. And if you look through all of Paul's writing, God almost always means God the Father. And Lord, I think it's always, but I'll say almost always because I'm not sure, is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if they would have said, who's the Lord? I know what Paul would have said. Who's the Lord who's going to judge us? It's Jesus. So Paul is taking the conversation and going toward Jesus and the resurrection. All right, so how can, what are some implications for us? All right, so first question, what are your entry gates? Or what are some entry gates in today's culture? Sorry, what are some entry gates in today's culture? If you wanted to have a conversation with someone about spiritual things, or about eternal realities, or about just the gospel, what are some things you could bring up or talk about that people might already want to talk about? and have opinions on, and you could have a fruitful conversation. I have a couple of ideas. So we don't really have a philosopher's club. Like, it's not like common to have corners where you go and talk philosophy. Honestly, I think like a bar or a pub, but I'm not a real big fan of going you know, in the bars and the pubs. But I think restaurants maybe, maybe the mall food court, I don't know. That sounds more like, I don't know, more juvenile than that. I think colleges... University coffee houses, any coffee house. I think there are places where this stuff's being discussed. But a big one, I think social media. I know, like, people don't, you never change anyone's mind on social media. But you can start conversations, and I do think you can find out what the culture thinks. So, what are some cliche beliefs today that we might jump in? Okay, so has anyone ever heard the term YOLO? It's not the candy spelled with a Y, not an R. YOLO. It's an acronym. Does anyone know what it means? Go ahead. What does it mean? Yeah, you only live once, which is why I like to say yolt. You only live twice, and then you face... Okay, I don't actually say that. But, but the point is, is YOLO as a philosophy says I live one time and then I die, and what happens to me when I die in YOLO? I, what's that? Yeah, I go into nothingness. So the idea is if when I die, nothing happens, I might as well do whatever I want now because I've only got one opportunity. Okay, um, if that's true, then it makes it very hard to have any moral instruction from you toward anyone else. How can I say anyone's wrong if when we die, we blink out of existence? And yet, people who have a YOLO mentality often will contradict themselves by having really strong moral opinions. I don't have to like go in and say you're wrong, but I can say, hey, what do you think about this? Hey, what do you think is coming after death? Well, that's interesting. Well, if everyone's going to die and blink out of existence, and in five billion years no one will exist because the sun will go red giant and our planet will be consumed in fire, why does it really matter? That's a great entry gate to a conversation. It also might mess with people, so just be a little gentle with that one. All right, justice. Man, the topic of justice is big today. What is justice? Who deserves justice? Where is injustice? Man, just ask someone, what's, what's justice? What even, I mean, we talk about it a lot today, but how do you define justice? Man, that could be a really easy, because a lot of people are just, and they believe in justice, but if you said, hey, what do you mean by that? 
I think they'd be surprised at how much they spin their wheels trying to explain it to us. And then another one I thought of is live your truth. People say that all the time. Well, if you're living your truth and I live my truth and they're different, is there like a bigger truth that tells us which one's correct? And if there's not, then how can you say any other one's truth is wrong, including like Hitler and Osama bin Laden? These are really good ways to just get conversations going. And then I'm thinking today, this weekend, what's a really easy topic to bring up? Freedom, yeah. Like, you're at a barbecue, and man, I love freedom. What is freedom? Like, who do you think gets freedom? Like, what about freedom, like, past this, like, I don't know how that would look, but all of those, I think, could be entry gates like Paul. Oh, you have the altar of the unknown idol, or an unknown God. Hey, let me, I actually know that one. Can I tell you that one? Like, this is something we can do today. It just takes a little creative thinking. All right, number two, know what your audience thinks about human beings and about God. Uh, I've already told you about my Catholic friends, so once I figured this out, I had to start defining what I mean by words or being careful not to say something that he might think it means one thing and I mean another. Uh, There was once a missionary I heard about that he said he was in an Easter country over in, like, Asia, and he would share the gospel with people on the street, and he was surprised. He had, like, a... 99% 99% success rate. And he was just all kinds of people were praying the prayer and receiving Christ and becoming Christians. So weird. And eventually he figured out, oh, this Asian country he was in, they're pantheists. Or no, they're polytheists. They, yeah, they, were, they believed in tons of gods. So adding another god, this Jesus guy, hey, no big deal, I'll put him in my pantheon. So he had to adjust how he shared the gospel. He had to explain that it's not just believing in this one, It's believing in only this one, all those others. Now, that helped him to have a much more fruitful conversations because now he knows what those people think about God. Now, think about humans. Man, just all the lifestyle stuff and identity stuff that's going on today. Uh, if, If you are an identity person where you would follow any of the identity alphabet positions, you really can't have any religious belief. You have to have essentially an evolutionary atheistic belief. Otherwise, you have to admit that there's some sort of inherent design in humans. The minute you admit that, you can't take this, I am what I feel like anymore. If I'm talking about something with someone in this area, I need to know what they think. Now, that's not to start up a conversation to like argue against those positions, but I'm saying if humans need redemption and I need to talk about sin, some of those lifestyle things are going to be seen as okay when in the Christian world they'd be sins. All right, number three, learn to creatively but naturally guide the conversation toward Jesus and judgment. Uh, It's hard to do this. I would say if you don't know how to do that in a conversation, I know this sounds cheesy, but try this with a friend. Like, tell the other person to be an unbeliever for a minute and try to, like, have a conversation and then try to naturally get to Jesus and the judgment. If you do it in a way that's cringy and weird, I guarantee you your friend's going to tell you that's weird. And that's okay. But, or you could go try it out at the local coffee house, but if you've never done it, it might be a little weird. But just try it, or maybe just in your own room, like, how could I talk like this? How could I carry the conversation and naturally be about Jesus? Now, I've got two more resources for you. Anyone ever seen Gray Comfort videos and or resources? Okay, just go to YouTube this afternoon. This is a good time. Look up Ray Comfort and just watch him interact with unbelievers. He's a street evangelist. Uh, he's recommended by very conservative Christians. He himself is very conservative. And he just has a mic and he goes up and talks to people and asks them questions. And he always gets to the gospel. And it's a great opportunity for you to like learn how this might work. And then secondly, there's a book there, Share Jesus Without Fear. He's got awesome information for you. All right, let's, let's wrap it up here. Uh, Number three, Paul's response to, or people's response to Paul's address. Uh, This one's just one one slide here for us. Verse 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We'll hear you again on this. So Paul went up from their midst, but some joined and believed, and some were also, or and among them were Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris with others. So a couple lessons. First of all, there's going to be mixed responses. Every time you share the gospel, every time you try to just have a conversation about spiritual things, you're not going to hit a home run. You're going to have some, you're going to bunt and it's going to go badly. You're going to have a foul ball. But that's okay. Just keep trying. Notice that in these five churches, Paul had all kinds of responses. And here especially, he had, he had people asking him to say, will you please tell us what you think? 
and they didn't all bow the knee to Jesus. But Paul doesn't stop. He doesn't quit. And he, it's not like he's confused. He's, he's expecting this. I think sometimes our expectation is that we're going to share the gospel, they're going to get saved. It's not always that way. Think about when you got saved. I, I mean, I know people who've heard the gospel many times are still not saved. And I know people who heard the gospel a lot before it really understood and they decided to, to submit to God and trust in him. And that just happens. So don't let that get you down. Number two, expect, expect people to say mean things. They mocked Paul. I mean, I've never enjoyed being mocked, ever, my whole life. But they mocked him. Why? Just because he told them about Jesus. They literally made fun of him. They probably called him names. They probably picked on him. They probably said untrue things about him. That happens. We need to grow some thicker skin. We need to try to remember not to get defensive. Think about Jesus. People are literally killing him, and he's having compassion, asking the Father to forgive them. Now, I'm not saying you should try to get killed and ask. I'm just I'm not saying like someone makes fun of you. Father, forgive them. They don't know. I'm not. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm, if Jesus can do that, I think I can endure some scorn. I think I can be made fun of and, and learn to deal with it. Number three, expect that some people want to hear more, but they won't yet believe. If you share the gospel and you think it's going well, and that person still has questions, good. That's awesome. That's like they're being a Berean, maybe. But don't think that this is an attack on you personally. Like, don't say, like, oh, you must not have been listening. I'm sure I was clear. Like, are you paying attention? Like, eh, like maybe you're not so good at this. <laughs> or maybe, maybe they're just confused because this is all new. That's okay. Take time. Um, anyone ever read Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield? She was a LGBT activist at the University of Syracuse. She herself was an alternative lifestyle. And uh, she had a conversation, dinner with a pastor and his wife. And they did that for a year and a half before she understood and eventually got saved. I'm really glad they weren't like, man, she was an idiot. Oh, forget her. Like, like stick with it. And then lastly, some will believe, and Paul kept going, and so should you. Um, as we get ready to pray and close, just think back to the times you have shared the gospel. I think that might be the best thing to do here. When's the last time you shared the gospel? I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not, I'm trying, I'm not trying to shame myself, but when's the last time you shared the gospel? Think about how it went, and then how did you respond? This might help us to look back and say, oh, you know what? I was a little offended. Or, oh, you know what? I quit. Huh. I didn't notice I quit. I just, I stopped, and I was a little frustrated. But yeah, I, I basically quit. I gave up. Or, man, I was so offended. I never, I haven't talked to that person since. That's, I shouldn't do that. Just think about that. Maybe dwell on that today and this week, and maybe the Lord's using this. Maybe he's trying to point out something in your life that you need to have your mind renewed about, understand properly, and then turn from that. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you for the way that you are kind to us and gentle. Thank you for your truth, Lord. I pray, God, that you would bless us. I pray that we would be faithful in sharing the gospel. I pray that you would give us opportunities, but also, Lord, I pray that we would trust you, share the gospel, and try to make opportunities. Thank you, Father, for your word. I pray for the rest of this afternoon. I pray that it would be a good day of reflecting on your truth and uh, just being with family and thinking about you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your grace. In your son's name we pray. Amen.